Today is October 17th, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Ellen Lau, who is Assistant Professor of Linguistics at the University of Maryland and at the Maryland Language Science Center. Hi, Ellen. Hi. Um, her work is aimed at developing better models of language processing and the neural mechanisms underlying it. She is particularly interested in understanding predictive processes in language and uses ERPs, MEGs, and fMRI to examine how readers and listeners use their knowledge of language to build expectations in real time. Is that about right? I got it from your website. So yeah, I, I recognize it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, around the room we've got Nicole Witcha. Hi. We've got Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. Charlie Wilson. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. Um, so there's so many places I could begin, um, but I think I want to start with this idea that it seems like language is like one of the truest forms of psychological inquiry um, that can tell us a lot about how we organize our thoughts and build reality, right? Um, so I have a really limited understanding of uh, the field of linguistics and its various branches. And you are a linguistics person in a linguistics department. Uh, so it would be really great if you could uh, give us a landscape of what linguistics is about and the distinction, distinctions maybe between psycholinguists, neurolinguists, theoretical linguists and just just it doesn't have to be anything long okay. just because some of us um, aren't familiar with linguistics sure. as a discipline okay so um i mean i guess i think that like the formal disciplines that have arisen are sort of accidental and maybe if we lived in a different world we would have like a vision department and a language department instead of like a psychology department um so i think from my view um all of these different kinds of linguists, theoretical linguists and neurolinguists and psycholinguists um, are all interested in the same problem, which is um, the mental uh, computations supporting human language. And uh, the mental, so I guess if we talked about this from like a David Marr perspective, like some of this work is interested in like what are, what's the properties of the representations that people are manipulating when they're communicating in language. Um, what are the algorithms by which people produce or comprehend language and, um, you know, at the neurobiological level, like how are those algorithms implemented? So theoretical linguists, it's kind of a funny name since like all of us could be, <laughs> I mean, hopefully are driven by some theory, but what people call theoretical linguists are people that, um, try to get into that, though, answer some of those questions only by using uh, sort of looking at the output of human language. So looking at text that people produce or listening to what people say and what they don't say and figuring out like, what is the system of rules that people must have in order to all generate like utterances with these properties. And um, so they're just using one kind of method, right? Sort of self-inquiry or asking other people to look at like, what are the strings that this mental system is Producing, And that's kind of something that, I guess, just by chance, we can't do in all domains of psychology. So in vision, uh, there's not necessarily like, a, you know, any kind of written record of like the output of visual perception in the way that in language, there's like sort of a written and spoken record of the output of our language computations. And then, you know, psycholinguists and neurolinguists are just using uh, other methods, I think is how those domains would be. Um, characterized that they're using the psycholinguists are using some behavioral reaction time, eye tracking measures, 
um, to answer the same kind of question. Neurolinguists are using something that we call neuromeasures. I don't know exactly why, <laughs> since we could say behavior is also probing brain processing. But yeah. So what? Okay. Um, so how is that? So how how is the the emerging neurolinguistics uh, uh, field? I guess. Uh, bumping elbows against the rest. How is that, how is it, how's it going? I mean, in some ways it was, it was like, a, for a while it was a new thing, you know, so when I was more familiar with it and closer to things, it was kind of a new, a newish trendy thing about uh, a new approach. You mean and, using neural measures to look at language? Yeah, and, and really interfacing with, with linguistics. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. on the decades timescale of when fMRI became more mm-hmm. of a thing. And, and so, it, you know, like all the new techniques, it has to kind of work its way through the society of departments and scientists and who gets hired and how they interact with older colleagues and other kinds of stuff. And so is that just kind of just kind of worked its way in kind of naturally now or is there's you know I think it kind of depends right because you also have different angles uh, you have on the one hand you have the psychology of language which is as, as asking a lot of times very different questions than neurolinguistics which is looking at what's happening in the brain when you when you have a, 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 the raw different word, word orders you know very specific mm-hmm. linguistic theories that were based on theoretical linguistics as opposed to understanding what's happening sort of more in real time uh, um, psychological psycholinguistic processing right I mean, so, mm-hmm. well, um, I, the, so psychology of language has been around longer than neurolinguistics in the yeah I mean I don't sense. yeah like I don't know <clears throat> I don't I don't know people use neurolinguistics is a funny term <laughs> like I mean I sometimes I just say cognitive neuroscience of language because it seems a little less loaded in the same way you might say psychology of language. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, I mean, is that what you're thinking of when you yeah. say neurolinguistics? Well, yeah, because a lot of people think of neurolinguistics, uh, even in the linguistics departments, I think, when they say they want to hire a neurolinguist, they're thinking of somebody that's going to give them another measure of, of the theories that they're testing yeah. in linguistics. Yeah, so if we, like, uh, um, again, momentarily adopt the David Marr split, then maybe we'd say coarsely that we think of these theoretical linguists as being interested in, like, the representation or the, comp, you know, and that they may not be interested in people that are looking at the algorithm or something like that. The mechanism. Yeah, the like, they don't care how it's processed, but they just are interested in the underlying representation. Of language, yeah. So everything yeah. you've said has know. been about semantics, I think. You've been talking about representations. So do you mean, when you say representation, do you mean representation of meaning, or do you mean representation of structure of the language? Uh, well, I don't, I wasn't meaning meaning. Like, I think you could ask that question about, like, you know, uh, sort of at the sound phonology level, too. Like, what are the, so, seems like we abstract across different acoustic um, instances to some kind of phonological categories that we store words by, and, um... So I think you could ask, what are those abstracted uh, phonological representations too? So so I, that would just be, you know, auditory physiology sort of, wouldn't really be... Uh, I don't know what you mean by that. I mean, no, perception <laughs> of, sa- of, yeah. of language sounds. So like we can see, yeah, we see... So language, 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 what were we trying to say? Language <laughs> has nothing to do with uh, 
the rules that govern how the words get used in a sentence? It's yes. just about the representations of the words? No. No. But I, There's different people. What, what well, the, that would be like a different level of representation. So you could talk about the sentence representation or the syntactic representation. That would oh, be telling you. So everything becomes a representation. Yeah, in the yeah. sense that we're asking about... Um, there are no processes. There are only representations. Well, the I mean, you can talk about, um, like, let's say uh, if we were <laughs> like old time psychology or whatever, and we have like box models, and you could say that questions about like what are the directionality of the arrows between these boxes are like clearly more clearly processed questions and then you could say like what do the representations look like inside the boxes that's like a representational question i'm not like defending that as as like the way that we should always carve up the world but you know i mean i don't know like we could ask uh <laughs> so i think i think maybe maybe i don't know if this is what you're getting at but there's um there are linguists who are very concerned with the structure of language. That's the syntacticians, usually, or people who are looking at um, the structure plus all of the meaning that goes on top of it and how the structure sort of drives that you know, processing of a sentence. And that, those are the, the, some of the neural linguists that I was talking about. So you will take those people who are concerned with the structure, that, those tree diagrams of how a sentence breaks down and what words go with what based on the little attachments that they have in each unit. And then um, some people will look at the ERPs and specifically because that's a good measure of, of temporal processing for language. Um, and then try to figure out uh, use the ERPs as evidence for a particular theory about how those tree structures are, are uh, structured, how those sentences um, develop their structure, right? Or, or yeah. the structures used. So there are people that do that. Um, and then there are people who look at more lexical semantics. And so in, in the way I think, I'm not a linguist. <laughs> so I wasn't trained in the linguistics department. But I know that it, and, uh, the, where I trained, the linguistics department, their core courses were syntax, semantics, and morphology. So what's morphology? Uh, the structure of words and how the words, you know, the, the structure that the words take in, with it in isolation or together, like when they're working together. Right. And there were people in that linguistics department that considered themselves, oh, I'm a syntactician, I don't know anything about semantics, or oh, I'm a semanticist, I don't really talk about syntax. So you, you do have that division still in some areas of linguistics where some people are looking at just how the language is structured versus how the words are structured, how they go together, or how it all comes together and leads to conceptual understanding. Or you, you, yeah, you know, but you I... Just, yeah. You disagree? No, I don't, but I was just worried about, like, are you seem like you're saying that there's no distinction between, like, a representation and a process. No, I thought you were saying that. Oh, no. I was just trying to interpret what you were saying, because everything I asked you about, you gave me a representation as an explanation for it, and so I thought you thought that you were maybe taking a purist view that all things are representations, which would be oh, no. fine for me. I don't know but what that's fine. But okay, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So we can agree that, like, because, I mean, for language, there's a very concrete way of thinking about this, which is, like, we have to produce language sometimes, and we have to comprehend language other times, and those are processes that we have to do on language. But it seems that, like, there are common things, like, when I'm 
you know, producing a word, oh, sorry, producing a uh, same word or comprehending the same word, that I'm somehow accessing some common representation in those two cases, right? That's independent of the process that I use to encounter it. Yeah, you want to move to? No, no, not at all. Well, <laughs> I, I, yeah, no, it sounded absolutely great. I actually wanted to, though, um, get back to what Todd was asking about. Um, and I guess it mm-hmm. seemed to me like what you were asking is that language isn't easily reduced in neurobiological terms. And there, mm-hmm. there are these different conceptual inventories that everybody sort of works with and a different mm-hmm. set of primitives that everybody's talking about. And um, it seems like getting those things all in registers is sort of a, a priority of people like you, people like you. Um, who, in my mind, I guess the, the neurolinguistics people, they use actual measures of, of, of neural activity, right? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Can you explain this to me? Sure. And so have, have so, we gotten anywhere with that? Okay. Is so that maybe, what you were asking, Todd? Yeah, and maybe I can no. clarify a little bit also to say that um, I think the field of linguistics is maybe going through kind of a, I don't know, transitional moment. And um, the linguistics department that I'm part of takes a, you know, one very strong, maybe new position, which is that um, we think, you know, no matter what measure you're using to probe language, um, that this is all linguistics. So for us using, you know, could be you're using a neuro measure, could be you're using a behavioral measure, or you're using classic tools of um, syntacticians or whatever. But we would say that's all linguistics. Um, okay. Of we would. We are neuroscientists tuck shop, so we are sort of hoping you would say, wow, studying the brain has revolutionized. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I would never say that. Um, (laughs) So one thing for me, um, working with neuroscience measures, is um, it's very clear to me that the stuff I'm looking at, if I didn't um, have uh, people around me who had studied uh, the properties of language very deeply and like what configurations um, you can see and sort of generalizations across the rules that people um, seem to be able to use to sequence words or to, um, you know, make words out of sounds. Like without that, I, it would be very hard to, to do this work, right? Because um, getting back to now this question, <laughs> so it's very challenging to so we're, we're we can begin with just all the challenges we're such a primitive level in cognitive neuroscience anyway in any domain so we just but uh, I, I think, I think <laughs> that, that the brain measures have revolutionized the field in a lot of ways and mm-hmm. i mean we've been trying to rely on brain measures since broken warnicky's yeah. you know it just noticed some some association between function and and brain localization and I, I think that um, the field, you know, the use of neural tools in studying language, neuroimaging, because mm-hmm. there's always been aphasia and there's always yeah. been brain damage that we could use. But neuroimaging is so so recent in that there's a lot of stuff um, that's being done. And some of it has to be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, and the questions that are being asked are developing kind of slowly in in different directions. So you have Mm -hmm. the people, like I was mentioning, you have people who are trying to confirm linguistic theories or test linguistic theories, or I guess hypotheses, Mm -hmm. theories, um, hypotheses about specific um, structures that have been observed linguistically. And then there's people who are going back to, to the 
functional localization of of different language um, uh, aspects of language processing, mm-hmm. like Barnicky's and Broca's, mm-hmm. and those guys are the ones that are sort of using these techniques like MRI and mm-hmm. um, localization techniques, trying to redefine the language network. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what parts of the brain are involved? So well, let's talk. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that. I mean, one thing I do maybe we could say a little bit is revolutionized the field of linguistics a little bit. I think is just enforcing. Like people who had been studying stuff from a theoretical, uh, I shouldn't say theoretical, but people who had been studying patterns of uh, the strings that exist in the language, that, um, you know, when Chomsky, a major figure in linguistics, uh, started this kind of study, he said that there was a big mentalistic commitment to this field, that what we were studying was essentially, you know, an important aspect of cognition, and we're using it by looking at the strings people produce or don't produce, but, like, we're studying the mind. But then, after a lot of people are doing this kind of research with their pencil and paper, and they're not, like, going out and getting any measurements from people, um, some of these people sort of lost touch with that, right? And sort of lost this idea that what we're looking at is a human property and it became more like a math game of like how can I write some rules that will produce you know what humans are doing and I think by bringing in neural measures and now asking these syntacticians and semanticists like well if I show you if I have the right kind of neural measure would you take that as evidence to change your theory um, and then people are sort of forced to say oh Actually, yes, I would have to say that because I, what I'm supposed to be studying is the mind. So I think in that sense, it's been useful, not necessarily in the results that we've gotten yet have forced anybody to change their linguistic theory, um, but that now people are open to the possibility that that kind of data could change the theory. I think that links. Restricting. Well, yeah. Restricting but that sort of, um, yeah, you know, link. The cool thing from a yeah. you know, some non Mm-hmm. A language neuroscientist point of view is that language is a kind of window on human reason and and the human mind, mm-hmm. and uh, we've sort of uh, taken the anti-mentalist view in neuroscience for a long time. That what we're is sort of uh, going back to the behaviors that yeah. Chomsky was trying to disprove, mm-hmm. and and but that point of view sort of main, maintained itself in biology. And biologists always just said, well. Or just studying, mm-hmm. you know, worm behavior or something right. like that. We're not making too big claims, but the the use of the same measures in language that you use in all these other non-mental fields uh, sort of opens up the idea of studying human logic and reason and language at the neural level, and so it makes it really exciting for the rest of the field. I think mm-hmm. frees us of what was left of our you know, behavior, behaviorist uh, constraints that prevent yeah. us from yeah. making outlandish claims. And so we can make more, we can make the outlandish claims we've always wanted to make. That's a neat idea. Yeah. I think mean, it's, pictures for them. Okay. In, 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 it's kind of something that's been happening, I think, across fields uh, or across questions within uh, cognition. Um, neuroimaging has changed this in a lot of ways. I mean, you can see this, this, Emergence of cog- consciousness research, right? And I think it's based on the same principles that now you don't have to just philosophize about it. You can actually get some kind of measure of what's happening in the brain when you when you 
operationally define consciousness in some way. Yeah, that now but, philosophers are interested in that data as actually, you know, mm-hmm. impacting on... Like, oh, neurophilosophy. Yeah. Like, there are some <laughs> cautionary notes there to be taken, though, right? I mean, well, there are, In fact, once the philosophers are joining you, you might want to... Might just run the other way? <laughs> no, we welcome philosophers <laughs> to the discourse. Um, so, But you guys are concerned with anatomical frameworks for thinking about things. And um, so most of us learned about language in terms of the um, Wernicke-Geschwin model, the connectionist model. And um, you just alluded to the fact that we have all these great new tools. What's happened to this model? Where are we now in terms of thinking about um, you know, the, the anatomical framework? Well, one, of the, one of the huge uh, I mean, changes from that particular model, which was a sort of a way too simplistic in many ways for, for how complex language is, is just this idea that that it's a very distributed network and you know language is not one thing it's a very complex set of processes and it's it's not just processed by one little part of the brain it's very distributed and that there are multiple pathways and so this is actually a lot of the work that well Ellen people that Ellen has worked with over the years and some Mm -hmm. of the work that you've done um, to show that that uh, path that Gashman model is only one small part of the language network, um, okay. if you want to call it a language and I think, network. Yeah, exactly. I think people have also become much more comfortable with the idea that um, some, like, it used to be this big thing about whether language is domain general or domain specific, but I think now people work in the field are much more, like, saying domain general sounds just like... What does that mean? Oh, like, say that an area is um, involved in more than just one function. So a big debate for a while is like, are there pieces of cortex that are only involved in processing language or are those pieces of cortex involved in processing lots of different inputs? And I think... That are common across different types of... Yeah. I mean, I'm surprised that people would ever... Yeah, oh, no, yeah. it's been a long, <laughs> a long debate for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> there were brokers in Wernicke's area yeah, the language yeah, areas. That was, that right? was the whole yeah. problem. So, the, so I'd like to clarify a, a mm-hmm. matter of language. Yes. So, so you said... That the, the new, newer way of thinking about it is more distributed, uh, and, uh, and I think that's a funny word, because, um, you know, the idea that there's localization of function, it lies on a dimension in which localization is at one end and distributed is in the other. Mm-hmm. So distributed means there is no localization. Mm-hmm. But when you, say lo- when you say distributed just now, I thought you meant that it's exactly like the Wernicke-Geschwin model, only with a lot more centers and a lot more no, connections. not exactly right. So, so it was sort of take what I said and then add what Ellen said. Uh-huh. So it's the specialization of this tissue is, is a big question. And then in a, on top of that, so you have a question of specialization and a, and a, and a question of distribution. Um, and the Geschwin model was a very specialized, very localized model. And... We're moving away from that with more and more evidence from neuroimaging. Moving away from specialized or localized? Both. So it's less specialized and less localized. And there are parts of the brain that are more sensitive to language-specific information, but most of what's being processed, it seems like, is bootstrapping on systems that are already in place. And language shares... Uh, temporal, inform- temporal information, it shares working memory, it shares a lot of other operations that are in place in, others, in, in other processes. And so there is this idea that it's, it's, there is, there's got to be a degree of specialization because language is not tennis and you know, they're not the same thing, but that it, you can use parts of the brain that have specialized for a ch- certain kind of process rather than a certain 
a kind of cognitive, cognitive event. So do you agree with that? Um, because when I was reading your fabulous review, <laughs> 2008, which uh-huh. I was really good, uh, I really got the impression that you are making, that you are defining very precisely defined places in the brain yeah, and very precisely defined functions in language. Um, I don't know, maybe a way of, <laughs> like, unifying these ideas is to say that, like, my expectation is not that, like, there will be uh, one area, a very uh, circumscribed area for every computation that has to happen in language or every different type of information. I think that there may be some that are circumscribed, and those are the ones that I try to study because they're the ones... Because if you have something that's not circumscribed... You're not going to have very much success with a technique like fMRI unless you use something like, you know, um, these kind of pattern analyses methods. Um, the only hope that we have in studying, <laughs> sp- like getting information from space across different subjects would be to study the functions that are circumscribed and localized. So I think there are some, but I don't think, I think now we think that like, uh, like conceptual information in the sense of like, I don't know, the visual information that goes along with the concept or, I don't know, sensory information that goes along with the concept is partly distributed. Um, But what I think is localized are, like, the units that bind all those things together. So I think it's useful to have, you know, say I have a unit for a cat that, like, connects to all the different um, abstract and sensory features for cat throughout the brain. I think it's useful if that node is, like, also next to, like, other nodes that are... I shouldn't use the table since we're on. We <laughs> <laughs> filtered. Yeah. So I mean, I yeah, I don't think I have given up on like circumscribed localization at all. But I think I'm. My aim is not as I think maybe in the past the aim was to like have the complete box model recreated in boxes in the brain, and like I think we're giving up on that hope. <laughs> so I was about to ask you like what, whether there is a box model that you prefer because uh, because people still teach the old model and of course oh, one of these areas just terrible. Is, a, is an actual place it's, in the brain yeah. and focus area is an actual place and they're the still brain. involved it's not and like so, they've been discredited well, these aphasics, this, whole, this, this whole model was created because of these crazy aphasia but there's a huge variability in the fa- aphasia and, and it's, and and it's unclear now whether like the area that you know they thought was, you know, multiple areas were messed up in those early people, and it's not clear that the Broca's area being yeah, messed up was some, like, there's some, the, some, There was a meta-analysis done um, by uh, 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 Nina uh, Jonkers. Jonkers' group, and uh, looking at the Broca's aphasics, and the only place they had in common was the insula. So it's like you yeah, know. and nowadays there are just like six different prominent theories about what Broca's area does. So <laughs> there are six yeah. prominent theories. Yeah, and Broca's area is still considered one place, or it's been broken up into five. It's been broken up into at least ten places. There's <laughs> ten subsections. Well, not and, and there, uh, there you go. Right, but there, there's you know some some idea that the at the, the cytoarchitectural level there are at least ten regions within that space that's called Broca's, and then. Um, and that it, it the quite another question is its role, how it interacts with the adjacent tissue, uh, which is now because it you know sometimes Broca's expands across temporal, parietal, and and frontal lobes, and then sometimes it doesn't, and so, so it's yeah, like a lot of it's, it's a huge chunk of brain, and it probably doesn't do just one thing. Is is kind of the latest conclusion. 
But um, but then there are all these other places that have been added into the into the mix, yes. and especially so, these anterior yeah. liberal places that you mm-hmm. because about yeah here, because the they're a little bit harder to get an fMRI like due to artifact, and so like the early imaging studies probably weren't able to get at them as well. So I think that's why they're emerging more now. And there's some kind of like. Uh, Speech suppressing areas that people have discovered using transcranial magnetic stimulation. Oh, that's how a does few. that mix into all the rest? Of so that's that's uh, you're suppressing the the motor planning. It's strictly the performance. Thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's, those people can comprehend perfectly well. Yeah. While they can, yeah. in fact, they can hear themselves saying nonsense, and uh, it's hard not to. It's hard to keep reading, actually, <laughs> if if you're under this this uh, TMS. So it's easy to separate the parts of the brain. So I'm, I'm yes, you. That is better, exactly right. Better, I have to do a performance versus comprehension and production. Yeah, that's some of the best data we have for any localization dissociation. Don't you think? One thing we can be pretty sure is that there's. Pretty separate areas for. Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> no, but based on that kind of data. Oh yeah, no, there's off. definitely. But but because you know, the, the problem you know, is these aphasias where people are messed up in both of them. Is that because the lesion actually hit? Oh, but it's often separated. Is. I mean, it's there often is dichotomy, isolated. but it's not always clean. And because we know that the brain is not a completely feed-forward system, uh, and you know, production and comprehension are highly related. Like we have, you know, this this dependence on. There's this big correlation between reading ability and, and phonological processing. Production and comprehension, but they're they're highly correlated because they're not independent of each other. You kind of rely on the phonological information to be a better reader, to be able to produce the sounds, hear yourself saying the sounds um, that you're reading. So, yeah, it's it's just really complicated. I mean, it's a high, very high level process. You're using attention, you're using yeah. memory. You're using, there's so many dimensions that can change, and and that's part of the problem is. One of the things that Alan and, and the group we've been working with have done or have been trying really to push in the field is that you can't just talk about language processing. You've got to talk about exactly what process you're doing, right? You know, like this is the localization part that they're talking about is we need to talk about the, exactly what aspect of language you're looking at and, and what the brain, how the brain contributes to that or how the brain Yeah, because it. like you said, it's so high level it's that like, it's really easy to alter attention or like working memory demands. And that's like, I don't know, this is like a working memory is like a really constant problem because if you're, say, trying to understand which areas are involved in building up structure, well, if you're building up structure, mm-hmm. presumably like that structure, that long structure of the previous sentence is being held in working memory. So how are you going to dissociate the areas that are building that structure from the areas that are holding it, you know. But, so, where did we go? (laughs) (laughs) We left you behind somewhere. Well, no, I was, I mean, uh, you guys took a turn for the worst part. is that this field of linguistics already exists. Yes, the I totally agree. All these different pieces yes. that right. have to go into the process right. and have argued it out mm-hmm. until there's some kind of agreed upon yeah. sort of psychology of language. About some basic properties, right. you know, people and still... That has, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that has been the foundation of the field. And, you know, I always think it's really nice to compare it to vision, 
where in vision we're just grasping at what are the fundamental properties of the visual scene whereas in language um, at an abstract level it's just given to us because you can look at how in text or whatever um, you know printed letters are just obvious existed you know obviously giving us some abstracted representation right so I think that's exactly right in language we have like a much better understanding of the building blocks of the signal that we have to access yeah, you know the you know the problem, right? Yeah. So this, the problem has been studied and kind of defined, and it's partly because I think it's language is defined by us, right? Mm-hmm. So we everybody's an expert in some sense, uh-huh. and we define it yeah. in a way that works. So you have sorry, you, you you made the pieces, <laughs> but like say vision, right? So the the pieces aren't necessarily given to you, but I think that if it if the pieces of language weren't uh, readily broken. I mean, we, we would make a language so that the pieces are reasonably organized and done for various reasons. Not completely. It's quite complicated and it has to be spoken and perceived and all that kind of stuff. But trying to optimize, yeah, memory access. and Yeah, so it, it has a sense of which it, there's a lot of structure in the problem. And then it has been studied for and it's been accessible to a lot of people for a long time. Uh much more directly than, say, vision, where you have to ask people to do something, right? And so you you have to have push a button. So you have to go all the way from vision to, to whatever you have to do, some, some behavioral response. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I was just going to say, so what I meant by it's complicated wasn't, I didn't mean it as a cop out. Because actually, now that you say it, it didn't sound like it's a cop out. But, but no, no, what I meant to say, what I meant to say is that it has to be distributed. That's what I meant to say, is that it, because, not because it's complicated and we can't we give up, but because it's it involves a lot. There's a lot going on when you're when you're processing language. That's why it makes sense. Yeah, but, so, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. That's going back to your use of the word distributed, which could still be localized, just with many different locations, different. And many different connections. Uh-huh. Uh, but you don't really mean that it has to be a distributed network because it doesn't. It could be at this point we don't know whether how strongly function is localized in the brain. Period and. And we don't have any reason to think that, I mean, people have uh, allegiances to these ideas. That you can find people that say it has got to be distributed because distributed processing is fundamentally better than localized processing. You can probably find people that say the other thing. Yeah. Uh, but there's no reason really to love one of these over the other. Yeah. We just find out. We just right. do the experiments and yeah. find out. Yeah, I mean, I think we just know empirically that we have some level of localization because we get blobs when we average across people in our from. <laughs> so I want to end on on a on a positive note, <laughs> talking about how um, this this conceptual linking hypothesis between language and neurons, and it seems like you know reducing language to neurobiological terms is sort of the what what. I kind of wanted to talk to you about to begin mm-hmm. with. And this idea that you're interested in of prediction mm-hmm. is something that makes sense to people who talk about neurons. And it's a really powerful idea that's sort of pervasive in the nervous system. And so can you talk a little bit about prediction uh, and how you're, you're interested in prediction as a sort of universal principle and how you attack it? I know it's, it's not an no, ending. It's, okay. it's a lot of questions. <laughs> Sorry. It's the beginning. Um, yeah, we should have started with that. So, well, I guess we could put it in the larger context of there are these sort of different historical trends and thinking about sensory perception. And one trend is to sort of think of like we start with this, um, I don't know, lexicon of things in our memory, but we're kind of blank in terms of the incoming input. And then we get some input and it just activates and matches up with things in our memory. But then there is another 
you know, school that sort of thought of the problem instead is like, I'm sort of constantly maintaining some model of the world. And um, it, that model is going to be there whether I get any input in the current moment or not. But if I get some input, then I can use that to like update my model of the world. And um, so I think it's in that tradition that um, all this work on prediction has become uh, <laughs> very prominent and trendy in our thinking about um, neural signaling in the last few years. And um, uh, the idea is uh, predicting, anticipating uh, upcoming input um, is, can be useful uh, in a number of ways that I talked about today. Um, a way that I talked about today was that it can make processing more efficient because you can sort of, uh, well, I was talking about speed, so you can use extra resources to process stuff that um, is coming up in the future. And if you're right about your prediction, then the work will sort of be done. Um, another thing that I didn't talk about is learning. And um, so a, a lot of people have said that um, anticipating, uh, having a system where you're constantly anticipating is useful for learning because you can sort of match the input that you get against the input that you expected. And the ex you can sort of use the mismatch between those as a very informative error signal about like why your model of the world is um, needs to be changed. So, so when people who study circuits think a lot in those terms. Yeah. And it, so it's a, it's a really powerful conceptual idea that I think runs the, the whole course of scales of analysis but anyway. yeah and you could even one? oh sorry oh no go ahead. i was just going to finish that you could even think also that like sometimes um you know in the real world you never know when the input is going to end and sometimes somebody may be cut off and they're like <laughs> i just cut you off in your conversation and um all you will have to work with is that part of the signal that you had earlier so if you weren't constantly anticipating that would sort of be a problem like okay what do i do now but if you're sort of constantly building your model ahead and then if you don't get the new input, you just say that the model that I built is okay, um, then you might not be so troubled when... <laughs> so, so one of the things I, I wanted to comment is that mm -hmm. it, when I've talked about prediction um, from, from my work is it, uh, with people who are more biologically driven, it seems so obvious that they're like, well, what else would you do? But it, ironically, this has been a huge debate in oh, the yeah. field of language. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem is that I think uh, Charlie made, made a comment one time about this too, uh, when I was talking about this, is uh, there's an infinite number of possibilities in language. And so people have argued that you're most more likely to be wrong than right. Mm -hmm. And so why would you predict? It seems like a, a, a wrong way to go, like if your probabilities are, are poor. And so the important thing is to keep in mind that these predictions are, are, are graded, right? You're predicting within, as, be as best you can within a particular context. So when you can make a really good prediction, then you're make, you, can, you can close in on something because you're pretty sure that's, that there's few options that are going to come up. Mm -hmm. So, but, it, but it's, the point is that it may seem obvious to, to neuroscientists that this, this makes sense, but it's it's been really hard to 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 bring this idea um, to to language research. And maybe also partly because people often have the intuition. I mean, this is another problem that generally plagues psychology of language that we can always intuit what's happening in language processing. And people, since this kind of prediction isn't really um, conscious, right? <laughs> I mean, occasionally you can finish people's sentences, but most of the time you're not conscious of predicting. I think that's another reason people were historically skeptical about this possibility. I remember in our previous conversation, I was defending old people who apparently don't predict. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, the, uh, and I was just thinking, like, um, um, 
half of the young people I say something to know what I said, even though that isn't what I said. But you meant, yeah. And uh, the reason is, I think the top-down thing can be overdone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, in fact, you said half the time, something, it wasn't about undergraduate, it was about somebody else in your life, but I wasn't saying like that. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's true. And and that's right. And but see, that's the idea. Is that so? So what child is referring to for the listening audience is that you know this prediction has been shown in young adults and in older adults seem to to use these predictive behaviors less and rely more on integration and a rapid integration, sort of you know. Uh, and and so it, the explanation for this has been that. It is. It can be inefficient because you have to recover for when you're not correct, and and that that's the hard part for older adults is recovering from making a bad prediction, and so young adults can re- recover quickly. So it's not such a big deal if they're wrong some of the time. So they're, my idea, they're wrong more often. They're wrong more often. They <laughs> just realize that they don't already know what it is you're going yeah. to say. <laughs> Maybe that's it as they grow old. Stop predicting. I think one of the one Works of the cool too. things I'd like to say is like. Even though we talk about all oh, our neuro- neurobiologists thinking, oh, that's a normal kind of thing, I think we know very, very little about how it works, mm-hmm. like in the in the neural level, the circuit level, about how to keep track of all the because you have lots of different things, different representations of the same thing of your prediction and the actual thing that comes yeah. in, and then the difference. Where's the difference stored that's yeah. different from the other thing, and where's the actual thing keeping track of what's actually coming in? Mm-hmm. How are all those things organized in time? I mean, one of the cool things about language is that it all has to be organized and kept separate to some degree so that it all doesn't get to be a mush. We know almost, you know, we know so little about that. Mm-hmm. And in the ways of studying, the neural ways of studying are very much wait for the thing that comes in because of the experiments that you can do regularly to do. You wait for the sensory stimulus to come in or you wait for the plan to do it. I mean, there's lots of people that are pushing beyond that and playing around with that, but mm-hmm. it's pretty hard so, and we haven't gotten that so far. So that's why I really Thanks like the ending. Us <laughs> wait, wait, I thought you were saying this. Let me bring it back up. Let me bring it back up. It's super interesting. So the connection, the connection that I see with with my colleagues in this department is what I think is really cool is work that Carl and Charlie are looking at and looking at these the dopamine system as a predict a predictor of reward rather than the reward itself. And so, then in that sense, it's it's all about what you think is coming and not so much what's actually what you actually get. And so I think that's sort of the my my equivalent model in language. It seems, it seems really powerful to have any kind of conceptual common ground. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> a problem that groups. in both fields, it's like still an open question and one that's really important to pursue, I think, or at both levels of this field, I think is really cool. Yeah. Well, carry on, finding the good fight. Um, thank you for being with us, Ellen Lau. This was fun. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs> <laughs>